Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Hey, everybody. This is Oni Logan from The Lynch Mob, and you're listening to Talking Metal. Mark Striegel. John Astronomy. The Talking Metal Podcast. Coming to you from the Silver Spacecraft. I'm Bud Friendly. And now, your hosts, Mark and John. Hey, it's John Astronomy coming to you from the Rock and Pod Expo here in Nashville, Tennessee. We got a really, really special episode coming to you. We got a couple of great guests. We got Noel Monk and we got Only Logan, but this one's really special because here at the Nashville Rock and Pod Expo, we got somebody who I've hung out with before, who's been on Talking Metal before, Mr. Joe Becht. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Joe, so glad to hook up with you here in person, the first time that we're meeting in person, and you've done some great reviews for Talking Metal in the review section and some news items on, uh, on TalkingMetal.com, so please go, guys, and check out Joe's writing on the website. Uh, again, two great guests today. We have Noel Monk, an interview that you, Joe, conducted. Uh, he's going to talk some Van Halen with you. Oni Logan, the great Oni Logan from Lynch Mob, is on with us. I had a fun conversation with him about all things Lynch Mob and, of course, Dio Disciples. We're going to get to those interviews shortly. Uh, but, but first, Joe, we are here in Nashville at this great Rock and Pod Expo set up by a bunch of people. But the guy who's really spearheaded it, Chris Sinzak from the Decibel Geek podcast. Uh, now, you know Chris, right? You've been on, on their show. And I was on their show once, and I communicate with him via Twitter. And I just really appreciate what these shows do. It's great listening. You guys put a lot of work into it. Well, thanks. It helps me uh, personally and also when I have to travel. And I really enjoy it. So I think this is a great thing that they're, they're doing here. Awesome. I agree. A lot of KISS fans here today. Uh, I just uh, I, I feel like the third wheel here because my wife, everyone wants to get their picture taken with her, John signing autographs. 
and I'm kind of just the guy here with the headphones on behind the desk. But uh, you're the mastermind. Uh, yeah, the ma- okay. Well, yeah. thanks. Yeah, uh, the mastermind. I like that. I like that. Uh, anyways, let's uh, let's talk about Kiss. Everyone here seems to love Kiss. You love Kiss. Although you might not be able to tell so uh, by by some of the the reviews you wrote on TalkingMetal.com recently, you've seen Kiss twice in the last month, I yes. think. Let's talk about that first time you caught them in the last month, which was like what your twenty sometime seeing them. Right, it was the uh, J- July sixteenth, I believe. Right. Yeah. No. It was. Yeah. It was, it was the that Chicago weekend. O- so it was, it was open a air. Chicago Open Air. It was a three day festival. I went to the first day and the third day. And the first day, I was really excited because it was back-to-back Anthrax, Megadeth, Rob Zombie, and Kiss. Right. So that's a no-brainer. Yeah. I was actually more blown away on the third day by the performances of Stone Sour, Slayer, which was amazing, and Ozzy, who looked just incredible and sounded great, and Zach was just blew me away. So you were a little underwhelmed by Kiss at the at the Chicago Open Air. Is that is that yeah, true? And, and was that their performance or was that their crowd the crowd response or it was a little bit of both to be honest it was interesting so that was my 25th time seeing kiss wow my first show seeing them was on the dynasty tour in 79 i've seen them with and without makeup i saw them on the creatures tour in front of 1500 people in dubuque iowa so i've seen them in all capacities right they just looked old and tired, and one of the reasons they looked old and tired was one of the biggest surprises of the Chicago Open Air. Rob Zombie was amazing. Yeah. He had so much energy. John Five was incredible. They outdid Kiss on the stage show. Wow. So I texted, in fact, there's a guy, here, one of the fellow podcasters here, I texted him the set list. The first thing I texted him was, yes, yeah, so I said, Kiss is going to have a hard time following this. And I like Rob Zombie. I'm not a huge fan, but... Wow, they, they were great. And I wound up, uh, I'm, I've been listening to his late, latest recording nonstop ever wow. since. Cool. It's just great stuff. And John Five is an incredible performer. You know, it's, it's a no-brainer. You know, we're going to talk about Van Halen a little bit later. It's a no-brainer. you got the dynamic lead singer who has a lot of energy and the kick-ass guitar player. And that's what they had. Yeah. You know, they got their theatrics and everything, but it was a great singer. It was Mick and Keith. It was Roth and Van Halen. It was Rob Zombie and John Five that night. Right. Wow. Very good. And then you saw Kiss, uh, what, like a month later? Yes. Yeah, so this is interesting. I saw him in Aurora, Illinois. And that was a better show. That was a better show, right? It was right? a better show. And I know you were originally from the... You're around the Chicago area. Right. So... Seeing Kiss and Aurora, how does that feel to you? <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But if you think about it, you know... Aurora, of course, how, how far from, from... We're talking like an hour from... The yeah, it's about an Chicago? hour. Yeah. It's, I would say it's about 43... About 45 to 50 miles west right. of Chicago. Yeah. Um, and, you know, traditionally Rockford, the home of Cheap Trick, was right. the second largest city in Illinois. So that was always the secondary market in Illinois. Now... Aurora is the second largest city, and you include Naperville in there. That's a pretty large metropolis. You're talking, you know, almost a million people in that area. So it made sense for them to play in Aurora, but it still had that Summerfest feel at this venue they they, uh, made in Aurora. Yeah. Very, very cool. Um, It's it's funny. I remember the Naperville area. When I lived there in the the 80s, that was like the new up-and-coming area. And uh, from what I understand, it's it's really developed quite a bit since then. Um, Cool. Well, on that note, I tell you what. We're going to talk some Van Halen. But first, let's talk to Oni Logan about Lynch Mob. 
This is classic lynch mob with sweet sister Mercy going way back to 1990. And uh, after that, uh, we'll come back and talk a little bit more. Hey, that was Sweet Sister Mercy by Lynch Mob featuring Oni Logan, of course, George Lynch, Anthony Esposito on that, Mick Brown. Wow, classic stuff. Were you a Lynch Mob fan, Joe? Oh, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that first record's so yeah. good. I got a funny story about Don Dockin. He, he, um, because Lynch Mob you know, related to Dockin. Yes, we of went to that Monsters of Rock show with Van Halen and Scorpions and Metallica. Uh, yeah, I was there. My cousin had a room at Alpine Valley. 
And we're hanging out in his room. Don Dockin just walks in wow. and starts hanging with us. So <laughs> that was kind of wild. Wow. And then, I think shortly after that, the band broke up, and then George formed Lynch Mob. Yes. Yeah. Oh, cool stuff. And, Joe, I also wanted to thank you on behalf of Talking Metal for your donation to make this possible. That's uh, all right. You, you, I was talking to Chris Sinzak last night, and he was saying that you can made numerous contributions to this rock and pod expo including one in the name of talking metal so we totally appreciate that you don't have to thank me thank you yeah you guys bring a lot of joy to my life awesome cool and without further ado this is new lynch mob main offender by lynch mob brand new followed by my interview with oni logan and uh, then we're going to come back and talk some van halen Mark, how you doing? 
Good. Thanks so much for taking to the time to talk with me and Talking Metal. Absolutely, man. Wonderful to be here. Cool. Well, let's get right into it. You got a lot going on as, as yeah. usual, but let's start with Lynch Mob. The new album is on the way. It'll probably be out by the time the listeners are hearing this. The Brotherhood. And uh, let's talk... The Brotherhood. Yeah. I mean, I mean I've heard the, the singles, Main Offender and Mr. Jekyll and Hyde. And this is the type of stuff us Lynch Mob fans want to hear. So that's, that's always a good thing. It sounds great. But let's talk about the meaning behind the title, The Brotherhood. Can you fill us in a little bit about why you guys chose to call the album The Brotherhood? You know, we did a lot of road work together, um, you know, and doing the miles together. You become uh, pretty tight as a unit, as people, as friends. And... Um, looking after each other's back, making sure everybody's up for call, lobby call, you know, getting to point A to point B and all that. Uh, everybody's, you know, well taken care of, with, you know, come on, let's go get something to eat, that kind of thing. So we, we decided to, uh, you know, after all that time and miles together to, uh, you know, uh, put a, a recognition to the type of uh, thing that we were doing for each other. So we called it the brotherhood at the end of the day, we thought, you know, this, this, kind of sums it up, you know, for us, you know, at this point. So, uh, you know, everybody in a good mood, everybody's having a fantastic time. We're having good shows and, uh, it just felt right. You know, and plus we love those old, you know, 70 album, seventies albums from the past, from the Almond brothers. And those guys were like the brotherhood too. To right on. And, you know, we listened to a lot of that stuff on the road and, and, um, you know, just became a tight unit and a family type of thing. So we decided that would be appropriate. Absolutely. And you guys have had some strong material over the last few years. You had Rebel, which I was a big fan of that record. Sun Red Sun, another great one. What is different about The Brotherhood? Uh, is there anything you could tell us about maybe the way it was produced or the the way it's going to sound that differentiates it from those two records? Well, uh, I think uh, George had mentioned this before. Um, the Rebel album was done between him and I and our producer, um, uh, engineer, Chris Collier, we call him the wizard. Um, and that basically was done between the three of us. Uh, it was mostly George and I, and then we had Brian Titchy on drums and Jeff Pilson on bass, which was wonderful to have them as a rhythm section. Um, they did a fantastic job. Um, you know, so the difference between the rebel to the brotherhood, um, you know, we decided to invite uh, some, you know, some main key guys into the band, and we did extensive road work, like I mentioned, and we started working up some ideas on the road, and so it was more of a band effort on this one, opposed to the uh, Rebel album, and I think that uh, had an effect on the sound and also in the songwriting element in the area of the creativity realm there um, as well. And, um, as far as the recording aspect, it was different too, as well, because we didn't, uh, we didn't stack it up like blocks and then invite Brian in and, you know, Jeff, as we did before, everything was finished and we just had them replace the, uh, you know, the electronic drums with the real drums and then, you know, um, you know, synthetic bass, whatever, uh, for real bass. So this was all cut pretty much live um in a sense so you'll hear that um there'll be possibly more of a groove type orientated stuff on the uh brotherhood um 
I don't know. I think also maybe there's a sense of uh, there's a different feel to the to the sound of the album too as well. There's um, kind of a colder steel kind of I don't know element to it. It gives me um, the writing was a bit different. Um, you know, uh, I would just take the the material home and just work on it and try to find out what it was telling me. And it took a little while for me to catch on that train, but I eventually got it. And, um, I think all in all, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a cool, cool thing. I mean, we, we got a little bit adventurous a little bit. There's uh, songs like, uh, the forgotten maiden's pearl, which is, um, you know, it's got a sort of a Moroccan vibe to it. And the lyrical content is, a bit out of the norm that you would find on a typical um, lynch mob um, or, you know, our type of genre, genre of music. Um, so, you know, I think it's got a little bit of an adventure si- side to it. It's, uh, it's interesting to me. I don't know. Absolutely. Uh, all I can say, it's just kind of fresh. We're always trying to, we're always trying to push ourselves a little bit more. Of course, you've got your standard songs that we're known for. Um, we didn't consciously make them that way. We we do what we do, and what comes out of George and I is a natural, uh, um, you know, sort of call for us. It's, for, for me, I describe it as the ancient way of weaving between us, because he just does what he does, and I do what I do, and then uh, you have the lynch mob. Uh, but, you know, on this Out of the Brotherhood, we stretched it a little bit more, trying to be a little bit adventurous, a little bit here and there. And I think uh, as long as we keep on doing that, the interest will be there on his app and on uh, on my behalf too as well to keep on putting out these albums for uh, for our friends and fans out yeah, there. Well, as a fan of of what you and George have done together through the years, that's that's great news. And I mean, it seems like you guys have been on a roll here these past few years with just great new music. Uh, you know, but in the past there there were times in the press that we'd see some feuding between you guys, some some issues here and there. Uh, what what changed with your relationship in these past few years? It seems like, at least from the fan perspective, that it's it's really strong and, and better than ever. I think it was um, just um, enabling yourself to grow as a person. Um, I think George and I have grown, uh, obviously. This happens in life. We realize that we have a good thing together. Uh, what we do... Um, you know, it's un, it's it's the unspoken language when we get together and make music, um, and then to finally realize that it's a good thing, it's a positive thing. People like it, our friends like it, our fans like it. Um, we still have the outlet from the record companies that would like to put it out. So I think it's just um, between George and I, uh, it's just uh, humble and grateful for the opportunity that we have. Uh, to do this together and to make some people happy and take it out on the road. Um, so I think it was all about growth and uh, putting our, um, setting our egos uh, or, or putting our egos at, leaving our egos at the door. Right. And just get to uh, having fun together and, uh, and, um, and making music because that's what it's about. It's just making music. And then at the end of the day, you know, whatever the business is, uh, that we work out together. It's all, it's all been, you know, laid out, you know, uh, uh, you know, fairly and everything. So everybody feels comfortable in what they're putting into the situation. Um, especially between George and I, 
it's a um, it's a partnership. So uh, for him and I, for for you know, it's it's something that we can uh, rely on as a touring entity, um, and also make records together. So you know, there's no there's no there's no qualm or any you know um, you know uncomfortable feelings. We just do what we do now, and we try to have a good time. Absolutely. Before and you, we turn to dust. Right. <laughs> and you mentioned touring. Are there a lot of tour dates scheduled to uh, to promote the record? Yeah, we got a lot of, a lot of dates coming up. Um, I just saw that uh, that we just got some some dates uh, posted up, and I will share them here shortly. Okay. On my social media pages, but there's a lot going on. Um, we've got some dates with Slaughter. We uh, they're talking about a package. Um, I don't know if I'm able to speak freely about this, but um, there's um, Slaughter and the Vince Neal package thing that we might mm. be doing. That would well. be just fly in, fly out dates uh, right. on the weekend. Um, that might be happening. Um, there's uh, also dates that might be happening with Queensryche, uh, the new Queensryche. Wow. And uh, there's a lot of um, weekend casino stuff I, all over the place. And we've got some festival stuff happening in the U.K., um, in November and a few dates in the UK. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that's about it, but there's, uh, you'll be able to catch us out on the road. We're going down to Florida as well. We're doing eighties in the park. So there's a lot going on. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. And to switch gears a little bit, we'll come back, maybe end up with Lynch talking about Lynch mob again, but to, to switch gears a little bit over to, to Dio disciples, uh, can you tell me what's currently going on with that? I know you got some European dates scheduled for that, but are are we going to be seeing you anytime in the in the states with Dio Disciples? At the moment, uh, there's nothing booked in the states. Um, they have, uh, I believe, the first date is November 30th in Europe. Um, I th- I'm, I'm not sure. I think it's in Finland. And there's going to be, uh, I think, a string of dates all around Europe that t- at that time, uh, bringing us uh, to the end of uh, uh, middle of December. Okay. Um, and so I'll be participating in that. Uh, we'll be going out uh, with Tim Ripper Owens as the second guest vocalist. And um, the exciting thing about it is that we'll be sharing the stage with Ronnie for one song at the end of the show. And uh, I'll let that be a surprise. But uh, it's all a go. And uh, I'll be doing that in December. And as far as any uh, USA dates, uh, touring, I'm not sure what's happening with that, but maybe that'll happen in the, uh, by summer. Awesome. Awesome. And, you know, mm-hmm. Dio Disciples, obviously a, a band that, that pays tribute to Ronnie James Dio and the, the music of Dio. Is there any chance we could ever, out of that project or band, hear new music? I know that there was talk in the past, um, and there was some demos going back and forth. Uh, I think that's still in the cards, um, but I can't say for sure if it's uh, you know at what time or when it will happen. But eventually, I'm sure it will. I know that I participated in one song, and Tim participated in another song. So there are some demos flying around, and it just takes the right company to uh, put forth and put the uh, gears behind it. Um, and yeah, so it's it's uh, basically that's where it's at with the Dio Disciples as far as uh, 
but I, I would I, I would expect that there would be some kind of album recording to be released. And, and would this be new music that was composed by by you guys and, and Craig Goldie, or would it be? Is there any music that Dio had left in the vaults that you'd bring to life? Uh, what what's the writing process behind any new music that we might hear? Well, I know that Craig has material uh, from the past. I'm sure he has some germs and some riffs that he probably had uh, prepared for Ronnie's next album. Um, although he has not told me that personally. Right. Um, but, um, you know, the main creative, you know, germ would be coming from Craig and then everybody else would put their, uh, their little, uh, you know, icing on the cake on it. Um, as far as what I participated with on the demo, I had no part in writing of that one song. Um, but, um, who knows? I mean, right now it's, it's, it's basically an idea, um, to put new music together and it might happen. I'm not, I can't promise. I can't promise, but it might just happen. Right. Okay, good. Well, keep us posted on that and kind of to, uh, just, yeah, absolutely. Keep, you know, Go down memory lane for a bit. It's been, oh, I guess probably like 27 years now since the just classic record, which I personally think is just aged so well, Wicked Sensation. Any? Did you have fond memories of that record when you look back on it? Was it a fun record to make? Because, you know, sometimes we hear a fun rock and vibe and then we hear how hard the record was to make. But going back and looking at the production of that record, being in the studio with George and producer Max Norman, Anthony Esposito, Mick Brown. What, was, was that a fun record to make? Is it fond memories for you? I think the um, the initial writing of it was fun. Uh, we had rented out this uh, old church uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, we were just having a blast. You know, we were having the time of our lives. Those guys just came out of, uh, you know, the platinum success uh, from Dawkins, and, they were, you know, we were rolling. You know, and those guys had just hired me to to be the vocalist, and I, you know, I was involved with getting Anthony Esposito involved in the band uh, from New York, um, and we were just having a good time. And uh, you know, the writing process of that album was fun. We'd do you know four or five hours of writing, and then we'd go to you know the uh, the Cabana Bar, you know, down the street, and hang out by the pool. And we were you know real tight. Um, the recording, on the other hand, took a little while because uh, we wanted to, to, to do a different type of recording as far as recording the drums live through a PA in the big room at this uh, studio that used to be off of Lancashire Boulevard in Hollywood, uh, in North Hollywood, uh, called One on One, where Metallica did their um, Black album as well. Um, and that was a cool experience, but the... Recording, you know, I mean, there's a lot of guitar tracks on that album. Um, the vocals, believe it or not, most of those vocals that ended up in, on the album of Wicked Sensation were demo vocals that were recording on a that that I recorded on a SM58, wow. which is a which is a live microphone. It's not on an expensive studio microphone. Right. And uh, you know, I would have these discussions with Max Norman. I was like. You know, I would just sing all the tracks over again on an expensive mic. Um, but he thought ultimately that the demo vocals that I had recorded on a live microphone, a $125 microphone, he thought that they had more vibe to it and more urgency to them 
And um, I have to say, after all these years, uh, I agree with him because it was fresh. I laid it down on the demo. It was in the moment of creative, uh, being creative and putting it down. I was living in the moment of it. You know, so quite a few of those vocals from Wicked Sensations were demo vocals. We just flew them in and I was cool with it because it had all it had everything that it needed to put uh to put across the 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 energy um but um i think the the process of recording that album with uh you know with everything that had been done to it and the mixing and everything it was uh it was a labor of love um and it took some time but we got it done at the end of the day um everybody did a great job max norman did a killer job on it and uh you know, we kind of knocked it out of the ballpark with that. That seems to be our staple album that uh, people remember us by. It still stands up sonically through any kind of speakers you put it through. And uh, I still get tickled by my friends saying, hey, check this out. You know, they'll right. put on <laughs> while I'm in the car with them, you know. But uh, it, it was a good time, a great time for us to uh, be together. And George was in a great creative space and, and I was uh, I was excited to be there. It was a great platform for me because I was this uh, young guy, his first album. And George said, hey, man, just do what you want to do. And so it was a great opportunity for me. And uh, and I um, forever will be grateful to uh, Mick and George for letting me have uh, come up to bat. Absolutely. Do you hear much from Anthony these days? Yeah, I just got a text from him, uh, I think it was two days ago. He sent me a little video of Jake doing something in the studio. Oh, cool. And, you know, they're working out of his studio in Pittsburgh. Uh, no, sorry, Pennsylvania. He's right. got a ranch out there in Pennsylvania. And so him and Jake were cutting guitars. So they're working on it, you know, and uh, they're taking their time, but they're cutting guitars. Um, so we're still in touch. Um, I haven't seen him in a while, but... Um, yeah, they're you know he's 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 doing good. He's playing in uh, the Red Dragon Cartel. Cool, excellent. Oni, it's been great talking with yeah. you. Thanks so much for sharing some time with us here on Talking Metal. Thank you, Mark. Take care, and it was my pleasure for real. Before before you hang up, Oni, if you could just give me an ID, if you want, you yeah. know, your name from sure. Lynch Mob and or Dio Disciples, if you want, and you're listening to Talking Metal. Whenever you're ready, you got it. Okay.
That was I, featuring Oni Logan on vocals. That's an old Black Sabbath classic, originally off the Dehumanizer record, and that's covered there with with uh, Oni Logan. It's off the Ronnie James Dio, This Is Your Life benefit record. Uh, Rowan Roberts on and Jimmy Bain also on that song, along with on, Oni Logan. Great stuff. Thanks to Oni for joining us here on Talking Metal. Now we're going to talk some Van Halen. Uh, Joe, you spoke with... Noel Monk, let's let's talk about who he is. He was the manager of Van Halen from 1979 to 1985. Wow. And he was responsible for the band exploding. Well, let's let's phrase it. He helped the band financially. They got out of that mess. They they, they had this the famous terrible record contract with Warner Brothers. And through his efforts, he was able to make Van Halen get out of that contract and make significant amounts of money and take him to the next level. Nice. But the story is one of triumph and definitely tragedy. Um, It shows the craziness within probably the most secretive band of all time. Really? And they're a super group. Yeah. And and he, he really opens a lot of doors. And it's uncomfortable reading at times. Okay, cool. And on that note, this is an interview that Joe Beck conducted for us here on Talking Metal with Noel Monk. He's got a new book out, obviously, uh, which you're going to talk to him about that, right? Right. And we'll have that link through today's show notes. And uh, here we go. All right, you're listening to Talking Metal. This is Joe Beck. Our guest today is Noel Monk, the author of Running with the Devil, a backstage pass to the Wild Times, Loud Rock, and the Down and Dirty Truth Behind the Making of Van Halen. Also, former manager of Van Halen from 78 to 85, correct? Yes, that's true. All right, so I finished, this is a true story, I finished the book, and immediately after I went to a sports bar with my son, and the first song we hear is Beat It by Michael Jackson. (laughs) <laughs> and <laughs> can you give us a little insight into that? <laughs> uh, sure. Okay. You know, that's when when Edward, who was rather foolish to say the least and stubborn, um, you know, was asked by Quincy and Michael to do it, and I said, "Hey, that's great." Yeah, I love Michael. I said, well, how much are they going to pay you? He said, oh, I don't want any money. I said, well, what do you want? Bread? He said, no, no, I love Michael. I'm going to do it for nothing. I said, Edward, this could be a big record. This could be a big single. Why do you want to do it for nothing? I love Michael. And so we did it for nothing. No, oh, yeah, what a missed opportunity, to say the uh, least. Yeah, that that you could say that. Yeah. Yes. So I mean, was there a chance he would get points on the song or the recording or? Oh yeah, yeah. we could have gotten points on the record. Wow. You know, uh, but Edward um, by that point wasn't thinking too clearly. Yeah, I never thought too clearly, but at that point, it was really bad. Yeah, that wow, what a story! So the book is quite an eye opener, and for such a huge band, there's so much secrecy around it, and you unveil a lot of what was going on 
with arguably the biggest band in the world over that time period. And I'd like to go back to the beginning. Um, and this relates to another story. I remember my, my cousin who was a few years older than me coming back from a concert. Uh, it was Black Sabbath with Van Halen opening up. And it was his, this was after the first album. And he just he said it wasn't even close. Van Halen just blew them off the stage. Yeah, and, we had a habit of doing that. Yeah. So you going back to the beginning, you had an involvement with the Sex Pistols, correct? I sure did. Uh, my best friend was Sid. Okay. Uh, I was their production tour manager, the same thing I did in 78 for Van Halen. And it was a really great tour. I mean, it was fun. I wrote a book about that. Did you ever read it? No, and I want to. It's called 12 Days on the Road. The Sex Pistols and America. Okay. And uh, it's very, very accurate. Everything I write is dead on accurate. Yeah. But most people write and they weren't there. You know, it, it kind of frustrates me because I read stuff even in my own, when I Google myself and I find out that I died eight years ago. Uh, <laughs> so I, I try and resurrect myself, you know, and I, I find out a lot of things, you know. Yeah. If you were to call up right now or Google, you would still be hearing the, the in-depth discussion of David's paternity insurance, which... Mm -hmm. Right. It was never in play. Yeah. People have a tendency to write, you know, for money and not for brains or for edification. So I want to get That's back to... very frustrating. Yeah, I, I want to get back to the paternity insurance and the M&Ms and all, all the folklore. But back... So, so, you know, I think the Sex Pistols, and, and in, my, in my opinion, the Sex Pistols and the Ramones are the only true punk bands. So... You said it was a great tour, and I just feel like there would just be craziness. But I'm in, I'm getting a feeling you go into Van Halen and it's crazier than the Sex Pistols, right? No, no. Okay, no. okay. No, I mean, we're talking about ten days, yeah, as opposed to seven years. True. And um, you're not factoring in. Sid or Johnny or the rest of them, they, they had a history of um, closing down shows. Yeah. With Van Halen, we never did. We might have closed the hotel down <laughs> on our floor, but we never uh, ended a venue. Right. So you go through the Sex Pistols connection, you're, you're brought on as the tour manager for Van Halen, correct? Okay, and then from there, you wind up managing the band. And can you go into a little bit about how you came about that and how you – because th there's always the stories out there that Van Halen really got taken to the cleaners in the first couple albums, and you turned that around. Well, yeah, <laughs> you could say that. Uh, their first manager and their lawyer, uh, they're – there are any 
folks out there that are starting bands, you got to be wary of your lawyer, your accountant, and your manager because they will all screw you. Mainly so they can stay in the good graces of the record company. That's not so much true anymore because you don't sell records anymore. The internet pretty well shut down vinyl. And, um, but still, your lawyer, I mean, our accountant was with us the whole time. And, you know, the first time I met him was at someone's house and he was just doing lines of coke. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, Michael was, uh, Michael cost me $100,000 at the end because he made a mistake on my taxes. Okay. But, uh, yeah, I, I would recommend watching your accountant. Okay. So, once again, our, our guest is Noel Monk, author of Running with the Devil, former, former manager of Van Halen back in the day in the heyday of arguably one of the greatest rock bands of all time. So, you there was a contract, correct? With Was it with Olstein at Warner Brothers? Who? Who was who was in charge of? Oh, one? Mo Austin. Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. yeah I I'm was sorry. The president of the board, chairman right. of the board. Right. So and uh, Mo, you know, when he saw them with Daddy Gentleman, he was ready to sign them, and so he made uh, Marshall uh, the manager. And that's Marshall Burrow, and, correct? Yeah. All right. And, um, you know, they had a kissy face, lovey affair with the, with the, with the lawyer and probably cut them the worst deal I'd ever seen. I mean, every two records they got to, um, re-up it, but I had to break that contract. They were making 75 cents on a record, which is way less than a dollar. And what I did was, after the second record, I basically threw stuff at them. You know, like, I needed accounting, I needed money, I needed this. And they did what I wanted to. They forgot about the option. So at that one, made the band probably $50, $80 million. Unbelievable. But, yeah. Yeah. And then even more so as you get into the book, you were more than just a manager. I mean, you acted like a family member or a father figure. I mean, there's stories about uh, Eddie's wedding. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, before and after. Right. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I, I wanted you to get, get a little bit into that. Okay, so let's get into Eddie. I mean, because some of the stuff with him in there, as far as Eddie's wedding, and he comes to you with a very unusual question about uh, sexual relations. Um, well, Eddie, yeah. Eddie didn't come to me. I, I went to him and said, Ed, I just got papers. Uh, this nice woman is suing you a paternity suit, actually the only one we ever got. And, uh, so I think you have to take care of it because you're getting married in uh, four or five months. And 
I don't think that would be real good. And he agreed, you know. And I said, you know, well, who is she? And and he said, well, she lives down in near San Diego. And I said, well, were you, were you screwing her? I said, he said, oh, yeah. You know, she gave me blowjobs. And I said, yeah, okay, that's good. Um... He said, you know, I love a pretty face in my lap. Um, and I said, yeah, yeah, you have it. That's, that's good. So, uh, what's, what's sorry? He said, well, she only gave me blowjobs. I said, she only gave you blowjobs? He said, well, yeah, you know, that was our relationship. Mostly, you know, in the car. I said, well, now, how did you get her pregnant? He says, you can't get a girl pregnant if she gives you a blowjob. And I kind of stopped and, and thought about that. And uh, I realized that that was a slight error on his part. I said, no, no, Ed. No, you can't do that. It, it's physiologically impossible. And Ed is brilliant guitar player um if he had a mind like he played guitar he would be quite a genius but that's not the case um but what you did there is more i mean that that's it, I, I mean i i used to think that when i was in fifth grade and your parents set you straight or you know some some type of guardian set you straight and and, and you acted more in a capacity of, of being a parent there by explaining that but at such an age for him to think that was just mind-boggling which leads to the next thing yeah, well it, it definitely is a mind-boggling mind okay you know um there's a lot going up upstairs going on but not many light bulbs are lit yeah so that, you know, that, his thing with me was he just recently, this is 30 years later, he says, well, Noel was, was David's puppet. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, God, I wish I could get Edward down to the studio and ask him what he means by that. Because when you read the book, um, I wasn't exactly anyone's puppet. Uh, if anything, I, you know, he said he spent all his time on David. And in fact, uh, Edward took up more time than anybody. He had more problems and more things to take care of. So I guess, but he's saying these things 30 years later. Right. Now he's still harping on Michael Anthony. It's 30 years later, you know, pick yeah. up something current. You right. Know? And you're bringing up a couple of topics I really wanted to touch on. So first is the, the David Lee Roth. You were, in fact, the puppet of David. You did not want to manage him when the band fell apart and he went solo, correct? No, I, I had had it. Yeah. I did not want to manage him. And uh, good, bad, or indifferent, uh, I couldn't have taken any more heading for the nut house. Yeah. So now, if, let's the, the paternity suit... Which it was 
how did that come about? I mean, not, not the suit, well, the, the paternity insurance, I'm sorry. Do I have yeah. to tell you? <laughs> uh, I mean, you know how things happen. Right. Someone screwed this girl, she got pregnant, and I don't know what she was thinking, but she blamed it on Edward. Right, but then the, the insurance... couldn't have done it, and so I said, well, if that's the case, Edward, the smart thing would be to take your DNA test and, and prove that you didn't, you know, actually have intercourse. Right. He looked at me and said, oh, yeah, that's true. But now with the uh, insurance with David Lee Roth, how did that come about? Well... You can understand David was very scared of getting a paternity suit. I don't know why, but, you know, basically uh, he came to me and said, no, this happened to Edward. I, I've got to I gotta get paternity insurance. I said, hmm, interesting. And where are we going to get this? He said, no, you can do anything. Just get me the insurance. On a million dollars in paternity insurance. He said, okay. So I spent a day on the phone calling up all the different agents and I got to Lloyd's of London and they said, uh, no, I don't think we're going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I could understand their viewpoint, you know. Right. Um, so I, David came in, I said, David, I'm really sorry. You're not getting yourself protected. You you might have to cap it, but it is not happening. He said, well, what are we going to do? I said, well, you're just going to roll the dice, you know? And so we said, this is a good story. Let's put it out. Yeah, it was great PR. So we had Steve Mandel, who was brilliant. Bubbles is put out that David got paternity insurance. And of course, all the writers picked up on it right away and it became a big story because writers don't check things. They could have called Lloyds of London, found out that you cannot get paternity insurance. But right now, you pick up the phone, or you, I mean, you, you Google. Uh, David Lee Roth and paternity insurance, and they're still discussing yeah. paternity insurance, which he couldn't have gotten. Now, it's only 35 years later. I loved our fans. They're great. But the writers, you know, need something to talk about because we didn't let a whole lot out. Right. So that story is still roaming around. I think I cleared it up and cleaned it up in my book. But that doesn't mean that, you know, these writers who were never there, never saw the show, aren't going to resurrect it. Yeah, it, and it was great PR, as was the Brown M&M story. Can you go into that a little? Yeah, it was pretty simple, basically. Um um, my road manager said, you're not reading the, the, the rider. I said, ah, okay, what are we going to do? I asked Steve, why don't you put in that we won't have any brown M&Ms. If we find one, 
and get fined a hundred dollars a brown m and m well, after one of them got fined a chunk of money, it got pretty well spread around real quickly among the promoters who were uh, sometimes as bright as Ed that they sh should check the rider, and they did. And so we now had no brown and M's, but this became folklore. Why are there no brown M and M's? Is it a racist thing? <laughs> Is it something about, you know, one of them can't stomach brown coating? You know, and it's still going on, of course. Right. Uh, and then we got bored with that, so we said, mm, and also, no... Coney Island Whitefish. And, uh, and the promoters, what's that? I said, well, you figure it out. Yeah. But if you don't have Coney Island Whitefish for supper, no one will find you $100. So they're all scrambling, and, you know. Anyway. Yeah. And yeah, you know what Coney Island Whitefish is? I know what Coney Island Whitefish are, is. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's a used condom. Okay. And Aerosmith wrote a song about it. No, but it has to be <laughs> from Coney Island. Okay. And it has to be brought up on shore on a Sunday morning. Yeah. Because right. I remember hanging out on Coney Island and seeing the, like a little girl would run up to Daddy and say, Daddy, Daddy, please blow up my balloon. <laughs> <laughs> so, and all his friends would say, uh, yeah, yeah, Charles, uh, blow up her balloon. Uh, <laughs> anyhow, that's the Coney Island Whitefish. All right, our guest here is Noel Monk, author of Running with the Devil, former manager of Van Halen back in its heyday. Um, the next thing I wanted to touch on was the Fair Warning album, which uh, is a favorite of a lot of hardcore fans, myself included. Yet, in the book, uh, you do not have uh, complimentary things to say about it, and it leads to a story about how you needed to boost sales. Can you go into that? Well, you know, everyone's got their own opinion about a record. Right. You know, my opinion's no better than anybody else's. So, basically, if you liked it, and I didn't, you know, nothing, no story there. But what happened was um, we had to be a platinum band by that time. And um, that meant um, we had to sell a million albums. Well, we had done that with no problem up until this album. And uh, Carl Scott called me. He was vice president in charge of uh, promotion and touring. And he said, no, you got to come in. I said, what's up? He said, well, you've pretty well stalled at 800000 And you're not going platinum. I said, no, no, Carl, we have to go platinum. That, that's, you know... So I went back to the band, and they were like, what do you mean we're not going platinum? I said, well, you, you stalled at 800000 and you have to go platinum within a year to be a platinum band. And he said, no, you have to do something. And 
that was always their their line. And so I said, oh, okay, I'll do something. I'll buy up all those records. No, almost did. But I went back to Carl. I said, Carl, what are we going to do? He said, well, I want you to go down to uh, Rust Iraq, who was head of promotion, and um, tell him your problem. So I went down to Russ, who I knew, a good friend. I said, Russ, we're not going platinum. He said, yeah, you stalled. I said, well, what do we do? He said, well, I'm going to give you my best guy, and you're going to get on the phone, and you're going to buy up all the stations. And I said, really? He said, yeah. And they were called P1s, P2s, and P3s. Uh, a P1 was a major, a P2 was a secondary, and a P3 was a, a tertiary out in the woods. Okay. And a tertiary was a thousand dollars. A P2 was a two thousand, and a P1 was a five thousand. So we spent about two hundred thousand dollars, and the radio started picking it up. Yeah. And uh, we went platinum. Okay. So there was a struggle, and, and it, it leads into Diver Down, which Eddie wasn't happy about because of the amount of cover tunes on there. Now, well, that wasn't my really my valley wig. Okay. You know, yeah. That's something they had to work out. I, I had enough stuff, you know. Sure. I had their penises to deal with. <laughs> um, I couldn't worry about, you know, what tunes were on the album. But it seems I like... Important it, stuff to do. But it seems like, you know, Fair Warning was Eddie's baby, uh, very dark, guitar-oriented. Don't say that. <laughs> he didn't have a baby. Okay. <laughs> um, you, uh, but you needed to push... Watch it. You know, yeah. It'll think that if you say it, you'll have it. Exactly. I'm sorry, but I just but didn't the, want you to jinx them. All right. But so you had to push the sales for fair warning, which led them in the direction of creating Diver Down, which had cover tunes and No, I didn't have to push them in a direction. They right. had to make it direction. Okay. Um now in the Diver Down period comes the Us Festival. And you negotiated possibly the greatest deal ever for a band. Well, it put us in the Guinness Book of Records. It yeah. was the biggest deal ever cut. Right. I don't know if it still is, but it was it was a million five five oh. Wow. And I had put in uh do you know what our most favored nation clause is? I do a little bit if you can explain, I'd really appreciate it. Well, I basically when Frank Barcelona, Premier Talent, said, no, they're going to come to you. And uh, they're going to come to you and offer you a million and a half. I said, that's nice. Nice. Nice payday. And um, I said, but put in a most favored nation deal. He said, oh, that's interesting. It just means that anyone else that they get on the bill cannot be paid more uh, than us. And it actually worked out because Bowie 
Uh, actually, Steve Wozniak called me up and said, uh, Gene Hall, we just signed Bowie. I said, that's wonderful. Yeah. He is great. And I knew they had signed him. I knew, you know, what they had signed him for. He said, well, you know, that little thing here, we're going to give them an extra 50000 so they can bring their equipment over and their clothes and stuff. I said, you know, Steve, that's really nice of you. And, you know, that you're really good guys. I said, but, it, you know, uh, it would be really fair if we got that extra 50000 He said, what? You're getting a million and a half. I know, but Bowie's got a million five five zero, and we've got that that that, that clause in there. And he said, "Yeah, but he said, God, you guys in the music business are pretty tough." I said, "No, we just like it to be fair." So we got a million five five zero two, and since Bowie was not a band, he was a single act. Um, Bowie got in the Guinness Book of Records as a single act, the most paid, and we got the most paid as a band, and we both got a million five five oh. So my little clause made us fifty grand. All right. So then the, we, it comes to the performance. Now, there's different opinions on the US Festival. I, I personally love it, but it is obviously that Dave is a wreck on there. Um, what do you it, mean? <laughs> well, you know. Ah, come on, that's not fair. <laughs> well, he might have been screwed up and drunk and coked to the gills, but he was basically sober as he always was. Okay. No, no, no. He was a little specially whacked out of his brain. Yeah. The one thing the guys never did was a bad show. But if you pay us enough money, we will screw it up. Right. So, so it, that was the only bad show they did because David had trouble walking. Yeah. And talking and remembering the songs. Aside from that, no problem. Yeah. And, um, but he also had a problem jumping, you know. Yeah. Now he's had the problem jumping, but he's in his 60s. Right. He can barely, I mean, they're, they're getting ready to do their wheelchair tour, I think. <laughs> uh, they're going to have a nurse for each guy. Yeah. Um, you know, it's embarrassing what they're doing now. They're, they're old men. David can't jump off the drum riser. He'll be in the hospital. Right. Back he, then, he was in incredible shape. He could jump off a building. But nowadays, you know. He's got a little hair left, and he's got a, this little plaid suit. Kind of reminds me of Johnny Rotten, um, you know, and he still says the same, you know, little prattle. And yeah. And Edward has got no hip. He's got half a tongue. I, was, I think they actually sautéed his tongue for one night. But in any case... They're your old man. Right. They should have retired five or ten years ago. They don't need the money. They got millions. But, you know, they like the applause. And people say, well, you're getting the show, but you're not. Yeah. These are a bunch of old guys who 
shouldn't be. I mean, there are some bands that can look good at this age, but David can kick one foot. I think if he kicks the left foot, he's in trouble. <laughs> um, but, you know, they're an embarrassment to themselves. So, back, you mentioned Michael Anthony. He, he gets crapped on a lot. I remember Michael. <laughs> so, in the book... He, they really take a dump on him, and and you hear this repeatedly. You, you hear it from Sammy Hagar as well. Can you go into what exactly happened? Because it happened right around the 1984 album, correct? It actually started much much earlier. Okay. See, Michael was a really nice guy. Yeah. He was. He never gave me a problem. If you ever see a picture of him, you'll always see him smiling. I think I got a picture in the book with him next to Valerie and Edward, and Edward just looked like his dick fell off. And Michael's, you know, having a ball. Yeah. You know, and Edward was always like grumpy and angry, and you know, Al didn't know where he was. Um, but they always picked on Michael because he was the easiest one. And so, over the years, he was the one that they would take it out on. It was kind of like the Lost Boys or uh, Lord of the Flies. You know, you pick on the weakest. Yeah. And, uh, you know, these guys weren't really nice. So Michael got a lot of shit. And then Al, you know, who doesn't write or doesn't make music, you know, he does with Ed a little bit. Besides, he wants more money, and the best way to do it is get the guys to dump even harder on, on Michael. Because Al's a pretty vicious guy. He's yeah. not real pleasant. You know, and he's going after Michael for exactly what they could toss him for. But I think his dick is actually laced to Edward's. Okay. So uh, Edward can't, wouldn't let him go. And he knows that. And, um, you know, so he does whatever he wants. And, and one night it, it came to a head in 84, and the record was doing incredibly well. It was obviously a big record. And... Uh, Al starts on Michael about how he doesn't write music and how he doesn't do lyrics. And I'm thinking, well, Al, you don't either. And then Edward gets on him, and then David walks around the table and had a big plate of food. And he just takes it and smashes it down on, on Michael's plate. And Michael kind of looked up. You know, he was not a very aggressive guy, and I don't know why he took it, but he did. And then they thought, oh, good. Okay, we can really screw over him now. So they they said, listen, uh, you're out of this album. And yeah. I'm thinking, but the album's cut. The deal's done. No, no, no. We're going to cut him out of the album from before it was cut. I said, 
the lawyers can do it. I said, and I know they can do it, but that's not right. Yeah. Well, we need to do it because, you know, he's making too much money. Okay. And I, nothing I could do because uh, people say, well, why didn't you do something? I represented the whole band, so I couldn't tell Michael, you know, right. tell him to screw off. And um, at that point, the lawyers made up a contract that cut him out, and they all came in my room, and Michael was on the floor on him with a piece of paper signing it, and they were all kind of snickering off in the corner. Um, and uh, so we signed away all his mechanicals and his, his royalties but for that record. Wow. Which was already done. Yeah. And if he came to me, I would have said, listen, Michael, tear it up, throw it in their face, tell them you're taking the night off. But he never came to me. So do you think if they called... They would have lost the show and they, and they couldn't make him sign it. Yeah. I'm sorry, now what was your question? Well, if he would have called their bluff, do you think it would have worked in his Absolutely, favor? Absolutely, yeah. they would have. They, they, what could they do? Yeah. You know, it's yeah. before a show, but they're going to lose $100,000 in T-shirts and all that. Right. Plus, if Michael stood his ground, they couldn't make him do it. And why he didn't, it's an enigma. I cannot explain well, Michael's psychology. Maybe you can tell me. That would be good. Well, I, I want to. I'm going to get back to that. But it, it, we, we, it leads into the 1984 album, which was huge. The band's bigger than ever. Number one single goes the number one, number two record in the country. They're arguably the biggest rock band in the world at this point. How the hell did they break up? I mean, what? What was the relationship between Dave and Ed? And and there was like this mystery in, in 1985. All of a sudden, it just, it, what happens? There was no mystery. People just didn't know. Yeah. I mean, things aren't mysteries. They're just enigmas. They're just things that you don't know. Right. And, um, you know, by the third or fourth year, they were not getting away. Long Edward and David were not getting along. Um, with all due respect, you could have dumped Al and Michael and replaced them, but you, without Edward and David, there is no Van Halen. Right, they were like the Mick and Keith you know, of the United States. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, but Al knew that his brother would never let him go, you know. Um, but bottom line was, my feeling was it all hinged on David deciding he's going to do his own thing. And very simple. He just made up his little four-cut EP, and yeah. uh, he showed it to me and showed it to Edward, and Edward kind of blanched and said, really? And that's all he said. Um and the bottom line was he put out this album, which I managed for him. I couldn't not. It was my job. Uh, but the problem was if he puts out an album, you cannot put out a, a show in 85. 
Yeah. So basically, there is no Van Halen anymore. Because you take away 85 when I envisioned in the next three years that we could have been playing stadiums around the world. Right. We, we had never gotten to where we should have been. And it's a thing that broke my heart. I, by 82, I saw us, we had about maybe, I think it's six or seven years, and we would have been a monster band, but we never made it. And we were a big band, but we weren't the big band. Yeah, you, you know, know, because I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, it it did. It, it, it broke my heart as a fan. It, and the subsequent album with Sammy Hagar was good, but the fact is, they should have called it Van yeah, Hagar. Yeah, but you gotta understand, David and Edward are Van Halen. I totally agree. You know, you yeah. can't, but you can't say that Sharone could ever jump off a drum riser and do a split. Right. He would also be in the hospital. I got nothing against Hagar. I don't never heard much of his stuff. But it was a totally different band. If it's Van Hagar. Yeah. It's not Van Halen. And I remember going to see him so in concert. Call it for what it is. Right. You know, you go see him. I went to see him on that tour, and and it was terrible. They didn't play any Van Halen. It was all Van Hagar. And yeah. Yeah. Well. So, you know, he at that point had him over a barrel. Right. You know, and then they got Sharon, and then the barrel got even bigger. <laughs> yeah. So, but I mean, no, it was over in '85. There did, was nothing left of Van Halen. People did, say, "Well, Van Hagar." Yeah, it was Van Hagar. Call it whatever you like, but it wasn't Van Halen. I agree one hundred percent. Was not ninety seven? One hundred. No, one hundred percent. One hundred percent. Okay. Did David leave or was he kicked out of the band? No. He did exactly what I told you. Okay. He made it impossible to tour. Yeah. You know, he wanted the David Lee Ross show. He thought he was bigger than Van Halen. Yeah. And he found out he wasn't. He couldn't sell the 15,000 seaters. No. Um, so his band, and they were good. He had Steve Vai. He had some great musicians. Right, he had Billy Sheehan on bass. Sheehan was yeah. brilliant. So that first, the first tour and album did well, but then after that it kind of fell off the yeah, cliff. Yeah, but, but it did well because it still had the hangover of being Van Halen. Right. I mean, you could have replaced all four of them and brought in a bar band and called it Van Halen and you would have sold out to the forum. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it was a name at that point. So what? It's like if you want if you want buttermilk, you can call it anything, but they still want their buttermilk. So I'm always fascinated by the business aspect of music, which I'm kind of in the dark about. But do you have any? So when David left, did Van Halen with Hagar become a new corporation called Van Halen? Was it a new? I have no idea. Okay. 
right. I was gone. I don't talk about what happened afterwards because I wasn't there. Yeah. Okay. I wish people who weren't there, who never saw the show or didn't hang with the band, they should shut up. Yeah. They weren't there. They don't know what went on. Right. I don't. You asked me a question about Van Hagar. I don't know. I wasn't there. Why should I say anything? Okay. I'm as ignorant as you are. <laughs> Fair Probably enough. Probably more so. <laughs> Fair enough. We're with I think no. I'm dumber than you. <laughs> no, stop. All right, so we're with, we're we're with Noel Monk, uh, author of Running with the Devil. We're gonna have to wrap this up shortly. I wanted to just go over if you could say a few words about each member of the band. We'll start with that. You talked a little bit about Eddie, but so let's let's go back to Eddie. What what do you what what can you say about him? I can say that Edward is probably one of the most brilliant guitar players of his generation, or any generation. Uh, I don't compare him to anyone. People say, well, is it Hendrix or Edward? No, he was... They're two different guitar players. I, yeah. I don't want to hear which one's better. They're both brilliant in their own right. No, he was a game changer in Brooklyn. Ed is also probably one of the dumbest people I ever met. So you take a brilliant guitar player... Mix them in with someone who was completely dumb, and um, you got Edward. All right. Now let's, um, let's move the on. The guy who thought he got someone pregnant by giving him a <laughs> blow job. You yeah. know, that Edward you know, was pretty well run by Al. Let's get to Al. All Al right, was so drunk. Let's move on to know? Alex then. I, I was going to go David yeah, next, but let's go to Alex. Yeah, okay. I was going to go to Al. Okay. You know... He got to understand, after all those years of having a younger brother who was, everyone fawned over him, and rightfully so. He was brilliant. You know, and Alex was a good drummer, but there were a lot of good drummers. So he was always ninth or tenth after Edward or twentieth. His younger brother was important. He wasn't and he knew it. Yeah. And um so he got mean and he started really drinking in eighty two. Okay. And I mean I there's a story in my book where he came into my room and woke Jan and I up and drank the whole mini bar. Yeah. Two scotches, two vodkas, two whatever. I would have thrown up immediately. And Al said, hey, Jan, let's go party. <laughs> yeah. And well, okay. Then we got Michael, who is one of your wonderful people. Good blade bass player, relatively. If you speak to Edward, 30 years later, and he's still got a hard-on for Michael. I don't know why. He does, yeah. He, he, he can goes... talk about anybody else. It's 30 years. <laughs> and he's still talking about, you know, Michael. Yeah. He's, he's saying, I'm David's puppet. The guy really isn't there. Right. You know, um, there's not much upstairs. Um. So you have Michael, who is 
a great guy and I've got a voice like an angel. Yeah. But has this thing where he cannot stand up for himself. It's like he's got everything but legs. Interesting. And then let's finally you know, get... And then you got David. Yeah. And, you know, if there isn't a mirror in the room, David won't win. You know, he's got to be able to look at himself. You know, pucker his lips and, you know, do that. And you don't know from moment to moment which David you're going to get. Yeah. You know, the one that's a total jerk or the one who's the nicest guy in the world. And it's very scary because, you know, if you came to work every day and your boss would, you wouldn't know whether he was going to beat you with a, with a whip or give you big hugs and take you out to lunch. And it was that bad. No, you, this guy <laughs> had a, oh, it was scary with that guy. Yeah. You know, uh, I don't scare, but, you know, and when David was mean, there was no one I've seen that's meaner. Well, maybe Al. Al was pretty mean. Not too bright either, but he was very greedy. Okay. David wasn't that greedy. He came from his dad had made a lot of money. Yeah. And he was the only smart one in the bunch. David was very smart. Okay. And he was very quick. And he was sharp as a tack. Uh, and he didn't have to be a brilliant singer. He was a rock and roll singer, and that's what he was. Yeah. And he did it very well. I don't want to hear he wasn't, you know, uh, an opera singer. Well, neither was Mick he Jagger. Was, he was a rock singer. Right. Mick Jagger isn't either, you know. Yeah. No, Mick's maybe a better singer, but David fit perfectly. She... And he was an athlete. The guy could have been in the Olympics. Yeah. He worked that hard. You know, I've never seen anyone work an hour. I mean, you got football players who always have hamstring problems. What David did, he never had a hamstring problem because he would work out an hour, of course, in front of a bunch of mirrors, um, <laughs> in the dressing room yeah. and loosen up and never pull the muscle. He was bright, very, very bright but totally impossible to read. So, that. And then there's his interviewer. You're a good guy. I'm just kidding you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I enjoyed this interview. And, no. and you've been a lot of fun and you put up with me, which is, you know, not that easy. Well, I, I can't, uh, I can't thank you enough for joining us. you're a fun us. guy. Yeah. So once again, uh, Thank you. It's Noel Monk, and his book is Running with the Devil, A Backstage Pass to the Wild Times, Loud Rock, and the Down and Dirty Truth Behind the Making of Van Halen. And it is down and dirty. Noel, I can't thank you enough for joining us. Ah, it was my pleasure. Are you kidding? So I didn't think you'd invite me. Oh, come on now. You did. Yeah. So all the listeners out there, go to uh, the Talking Metal page, go to Mark's Amazon link, and click it on, buy the book, correct? 
That's the best way. Absolutely. Yeah. Don't buy the book. Buy the books. All right. Buy the for books. For everyone in your house. All right. <laughs> all your friends. Anyone you ever met. And, and that would be actually better than buying the book. But if you buy the book, that's okay, too. Well, Noel, thank you again. Have a great evening. I'm glad. Right. I, had a, I had a good time. I enjoy interviews. And you've been a pleasure to work with. Thank you. Thank you. Hear about it later by Van Halen off the Fair Warning record. We are live at the 
Nashville Rockin' Pod Expo here in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Obviously, Joe Becht has been uh, my co-host on this episode, and uh, thank you for doing that interview. Oh, that's it was it was great fun, and man, that guy can talk. It was Weird. easy interview. Uh, oh. I just wanted to ask some basic questions to let him run with it. Nice. Nice, and I'm trying to think uh, what else is going on. You, what, what's the next review you're going to write for Talking Metal? Anything coming up? Oh, um, you know, I haven't worked on that okay. yet. Right. Well, maybe I'll review this. Maybe almost. I'll review the uh, podcast convention <laughs> in, in my go. experience down here. There you go. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, it's I, been. I, think uh, this, I know you have uh, you have experience in film. I, I think. That a great it would make a great documentary about podcasting. Yeah, I, think I just so think it would too. be riveting. Yes, if you would, you uh, would do something like that. But back to the uh, Noel Monk interview. I'm glad you chose the song off of Fair Warning because that plays a really interesting part in the album. How the sales stalled and they were worried. Right. And you know, there's always talk that it was Eddie's album. It was a, it took a dark corner, and David wasn't happy with the dark tone of it but a lot of the hardcore fans that's like their most metal album yeah i love it noel according to noel he had to do the payola thing significantly to make it sure it went platinum wow because if they didn't go platinum they would tank and then that subsequently led to the diver down which had a lot of covers and then i'm trying to think i want to say five covers on diver down is that right yeah and eddie wasn't happy cover um uh what was that? They did Hang Him High. Hang, well, they did uh, well, Dancing in the Streets. Right, Dancing. Uh, Pretty Woman. Was they Hang Him High a cover? Hang Him High was, no, not Hang Him High. I'm sorry. Uh, let, let the, the Good Time. Good, the, yeah, the Kink song. Um, Hang Him High was an original. Right. Um, where Have All the Good Times Gone? I right, Where Have All the Good Times Gone? Right. Pretty Woman, Dancing in the Streets. Uh, Big Bad Bill. Right. right, Happy Trails. Yeah, Happy Trails. It's five. It's five, and Pretty I Woman. Guess. Yeah, we said pretty well. Okay. Yeah, so I yeah. think five sounds correct, but have to check that to, to be sure. Anyways, uh, great talking with you, Joe. All right, Mark, so you mentioned Chicago Open Air, and I just wanted to play a song from the album of the year. I It keeps on getting better every time I listen to it, and it's the new Stone Sour album, which is called Hydrograd. And that's a big story right there. How it's a pretty interesting story. How he entered, how he, uh, how Corey named the album. Song I really like on there. I, I mean, I love all the songs, but I'd like you to play uh, Red, Rose Red, Violet Blue. Uh, cool. It's just, I just think it's an amazing song. And anybody out there, get the new Stone Sour. Absolutely. Here we go to take us out a little Stone Sour. My life in stocks and order They're on the rise this quarter Beware of certain friends We sell you out when everything is free I know what I am to all of you
ourselves with Instead of quiet respite We choose the noose in lieu of hope Oh Rosemary, oh Violet Blue I should have seen the clues But this song is dumb and so am I Assassinations are really observations 